This morning we get to look at one of the classic passages uh, in the whole of the book of Acts. Uh, So if you want to follow along, uh, we're going to be in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through to the end of verse 47. However, before we get into that, before we go any further, I do need to issue something of a warning. You see, what I want to do this morning is so some pretty subversive thoughts in your heart about the vision you have for the rest of your life. I just want to lob some questions in there that may well disrupt where you think you're heading and what it is you want for the rest of your life. And so, if you don't want your plans disrupted, I'd suggest the next half an hour or so you either cover your ears or if you don't want to put me off by doing that, uh, you can leave the room right now. In fact, people are actually coming in, which is a good sign. Now, don't say, don't say, I haven't warned you. Also, I need to say, just in my preliminaries, we will eventually get to Acts chapter 2. But I do want to spend slightly longer than usual setting the scene to make sure we all feel the full impact of this passage. And although the next 10 minutes or so may feel slightly negative at times, you do need to understand the bad news to fully appreciate the good news, which I promise you will eventually come. So hang on in there. All that being said, by way of introduction, one of the reasons why I think the whole book of Acts is so crucially important to us is it fills in the gaps between the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, and the epistles that come towards the end of the New Testament, between what Jesus taught, what he accomplished through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, and then all the theology you get in the letters at the end of the New Testament. If you like, the book of Acts shows us how the earliest followers of Jesus took that message and began to try to work it out in everyday life. If you remember, that's actually how Luke opened the whole book of Acts. He starts by saying how his former book, Luke's Gospel, talks about all that Jesus began to do and teach. And so now, through the book of Acts and through to today, the story continues. The story continues lived out through the lives of his followers. Now, just by having a side, I don't know about you, But if I was wanting to found the world's largest religion, there is absolutely no way I would have handpicked the followers that Jesus did. I mean, would you? Uh, Think of Peter. He had this kind of compulsive devotion to fishing. Can't seem to ever completely break free from it. Jesus dies. What does he do? He simply goes back to catching fish. James and John, remember the story? They wanted to call down fire on villages that Jesus actually came to save and rescue. Thomas doubts, Judas betrays. They're not the kind of people who you would want to birth a whole movement with. And if you really think about it, even the person of Jesus himself and his message and his ministry at the time didn't inspire a whole lot of confidence. Initially, at least, it wasn't all that big a deal. 
A guy called Rodney Stark, in his book, The Rise of Christianity, he says this about Jesus. He was a teacher and a miracle worker who spent nearly all of his brief ministry in the tiny and obscure province of Galilee, often preaching to outdoor gatherings. A few listeners took up his invitation to follow him, and a dozen or so became his devoted disciples. But when he was executed by the Romans, his followers probably numbered no more than several hundred. How is it possible for this obscure Jewish sect to become the largest religion in the whole world? But that's exactly what happened. And it's absolutely remarkable how it spread. I mean, they did this without Twitter, WhatsApp, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat. That They did it without podcasting or websites or marketing agencies. They did it without any of the things that perhaps we would think would be reasonably important today. For a long time, they didn't even have a completed version of the New Testament. There were problems in the first church with racism, immorality, legalism, and yet somehow this obscure rabbi from the outer fringes of the Roman Empire with his bumbling bunch of nobodies managed to found the world's largest religion. Rodney Stark goes on to say this, in 40 AD there may only have been a thousand Christians and yet by 350 AD they were in the region of 32 million. That's 53% of the population who had converted to Christianity. Now look, if they didn't have any of the things that perhaps we today would have relied on, what did they have? And to flip it around, how did they practice their faith in ways that perhaps we might be missing? I mean, what can we today learn from them? Because it is of paramount importance that we do learn from them. You see, without wishing to over-sensationalize this, except for a fresh move of God here in the UK in our day, our job as Christians will be to simply manage the slow and steady decline and eventual death of Christianity, potentially in our generation. I mean, how did it get to this? How has there been such a shift away from faith in Jesus? Let me suggest two things. First of all, I think there's our demand in our culture for entertainment. In his book called Amusing Ourselves to Death, a cheery little read, that one, uh, by a guy called Neil Postman. He describes how pretty much everything in our culture today has been converted to a form of consumable entertainment. He adds that the vision of humanity in modern society is an individual alone in a room sitting in front of a screen. If you could reduce everything down to one image, this would be the defining image. And then secondly, there's the rise of individualism. Recently, read an article which describes how the essential metaphor picture for how everyone views life has moved in our culture from the home to one of journey and getting out there. And so the ideas of covenant, 
and commitment and relationship and family and belonging and home and staying all disappear for the glamour of the road. The article concludes by saying, there are four things nowadays that tend to define how people in our culture view the radical individual. First of all, they're autonomous. In other words, they don't want anybody telling them what to do or how they should live their life. Secondly, they're self-defining. In other words, they have the right to choose for themselves who they are, whether that's their gender, their sexuality, even their species. Thirdly, they're anti-covenantal. In other words, they're increasingly unwilling to commit or put down roots. Fourthly, they've romanticized the stranger. In other words, they're constantly fantasizing about the new and the unknown, what's out there. Now, all that being said, interesting or completely uninteresting as it may be to you, how does all of that impact the heart of the disciple of Jesus? In what ways might this impact our lives and our hearts? Well, for starters, I'd suggest the constant quest for entertainment in our culture shifts our expectations so that everything that happens in our lives has to be exciting and dramatic and make an impact immediately. And that the only sin that exists in our world is that of being boring, ordinary, or stuck in something that's mundane. Just by way of an aside, I think that completely explains the way that social media and marketing tends to work. I mean, they're constantly trying to create the next standout thing that will grab our attention in the moment. And that's okay for the world. I don't see how else you would go about selling a product. I mean, being mediocre doesn't seem like a great marketing selling point. But when that infects how we expect the church to be, I think it absolutely kills what God is wanting to do in the human heart. Listen, when people walk through the doors of the church meeting wanting their needs to be met and to be entertained in the process without ever being willing to fully put down roots, the potential for authentic relationship is killed in an instant. You add to that the championing of the individual, and you've driven the final nail into the coffin of community. Now, I don't know what you think, but I firmly believe that the independence, the individualism in our culture works against healthy relationships at the very deepest level. And so what happens is we come into the church expecting, wanting, desperate to find community and end up blaming the church when we feel lonely. But I think a lot of the time we wrongly criticize the church for something that our culture has done to us. Listen, our culture has molded us and shaped us in such a way that loneliness very often is just inevitable. What's more? when we view everything individualistically, we're always going to have issues with the teaching of the Bible. 
Because in my experience, most people are asking questions that the Bible isn't actually trying to answer. You see, the Bible's primary concern is with equipping us, the church, to be the people of God, not the person of God. And so if you were to ask someone, well, how's your church? They are more than likely going to answer in relation to themselves. And if it's working for them individually, then it's great, it's wonderful, the best church ever. But the moment it is not working for them, like I don't feel like I've got any friends or don't really like the worship, feeling a little bit restless, not making enough of an impact, my, my kids aren't happy in the kids' work, my, my, my gifts just aren't being recognized or used here, then it's not so great. And perhaps it's time to look for a different church, a better church, one where my needs will be met. Now look, I did warn you that it it might be slightly negative to start off with, and I really desperately don't want to come across as harsh, but I genuinely don't know how else to say this. If your answer to the question, well, how's your church, if you answer in relation to you, you've probably missed the point. And I know this is challenging, but my role isn't to stand at the front here and entertain you and crack a whole load of jokes, unfortunately. A big part of my role is to try to speak the truth and help you see reality for what it really is. And so I want to ask you whether you have invited Jesus to be not only your personal Lord and Saviour, but the Lord and Saviour of you in community with others. You see, it's one thing to say that Jesus is my personal Lord and Saviour, but have we even got a framework, a way for thinking of his Lordship in terms of our relationship with the church? So what I want to do today is try and make a radical call to reorientate life around a shared mission in community with others. I want to push you away from asking questions about how the church is serving me and my needs to the bigger, grander, way more significant question of how are we more and more becoming the people of God together. And perhaps the specific question which we at Church Central need to be wrestling with is how do we effectively be the people of God in a place like Birmingham? Now I suggest that what the first church did was make that call primary, perhaps not for Birmingham but for Jerusalem or where God had placed them. And questions about their individual needs, well they were secondary. And what I fear we've tended to do is flip this right on its head. We've perhaps neglected Jesus' primary call and made secondary issues of primary importance. As a result, the first church won the world. And tragically, we're losing it. Now, bearing all of that in mind, are you happy for us to move on to the good news? Yes, please. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I promise you, it does get better from this point on. Just have a listen to what Luke writes. If you've still got your Bible patiently open in Acts chapter 2, 
We've got to pick it up in verse 42. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshipped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. Show of hands, how many of you would love to experience that kind of community? Anyone in the room? The vast majority of us. You know, I think deep down we all do. See, we were created as relational beings who need each other. Every single one of us has this God-given need and desire for love and for acceptance, for belonging, for relating, for companionship, for friendship. Listen, where the individualism in our culture tends to breed loneliness and isolation and abandonment, we as the church can be a place of healing. In fact, I dare to go even further than that. We absolutely must be. And so in the time that remains, I want to very quickly unpack not one, not two, not three, not four, five things in the next quarter of an hour that will help us get there. Help us get to the place most of us have put our hands up to say we would like to be. Here's the first thing we see as we look at this passage in Acts. They had a different set of priorities. First church, completely different set of priorities. Here's the key phrase that I think explains everything else that happens in this passage. They devoted themselves. They devoted themselves. They didn't dabble with their faith didn't try and fit the kingdom of God into the cracks of their already maxed out schedules. They devoted themselves to what was happening in this particular place. Rather than asking, what's in it for me? And is it exciting? They devoted themselves to teaching, fellowship, breaking bread, prayer and generosity. This wasn't about individual commitment. This was all about the commitment of a community together. You know, Jesus said it quite a bit, that the secret of thriving is to rightly order your heart. That's why I said to seek first the kingdom of God and everything else will then be set right. It's like when our hearts are rightly ordered around the things closest to God's heart, his priorities for us, that's when we feel most filled with life. When the priorities of our heart get slightly out of sync with God's, when they get slightly out of order, that's when we begin to grind out an existence and life becomes increasingly a burden rather than a blessing. That's the first thing. They had a different set of priorities. They rightly ordered their hearts after the things that are a priority to God. Here's the second thing. There was a sense of permanence. You read this passage, it's not overtly stated, but I do think it's at least implied. There was a sense of permanence 
to where they did their life. Now look, I love living in a city. But let's be honest, it certainly has its downsides. Perhaps the biggest one is people are always passing through. It is very, very transient. People arrive in the city and very quickly end up living in an idealized past of how good it was in the place they've come from or how great it's going to be when they move to the next place. But people rarely end up content where they are. And so as a result, they never fully put their roots down. They don't invest, they don't serve, they don't love because they don't really plan to be here very long. I mean, why on earth would I love you sacrificially from the bottom of my heart when in a couple of years I'm probably never ever going to see you again? I'll probably defriend you on Facebook. We won't even be connected in any way. So why on earth should I go all in? But look, God is bringing the world to cities. Back in the first century, when the first church was centered in Jerusalem, the Great Commission was to go into all the earth. But in our generation, when God is bringing the whole world to the city, I can't help wondering whether the Great Commission for a lot of us isn't to go, but to simply stay. Now don't hear me wrong, a huge part of who we are at Church Central is wanting desperately to impact nations and that has got to mean we keep on sending people to places where there aren't many churches. But the flip side of that is I think it can breed a way of thinking that to be radical is to go and to stay, well that's to lack faith or not be radical. You know, I think many of us, probably the majority of us, need to hear the call to stay with a fresh sense of faith to reach the many people that God still has for us in our city. And I know that some of you, even now, are pushing back on that inwardly. You struggle to hear this because, if truth be told, you don't really like Birmingham or you love Birmingham, but you don't feel called to the place. But I'd humbly suggest that's not the point. There are over a million people here in this city who I'm pretty convinced God loves and who currently don't know him. And whatever the place, have a glamorous or unglamorous, have you like it or loathe it, people matter and regardless of our alternative calls we are all called to reach people we are I think a lot of the time the radical choice the choice that demands most faith is actually to stay but I hasten to add it's not enough simply to stay I mean, you can stay here and just live like everyone else. If you're not being salt, if you're not being light, what difference is that going to make? As I try to show you, we have a different set of priorities. And when we start to live out what it means to be part of the kingdom of God with permanence, that is when incredible things can start to happen. So the first thing, 
Different set of priorities. Second thing, a sense of permanence. Here's the third one. There was a sense of proximity. You notice that in the passage, every day they met together. Now this is a challenge, isn't it? In the busyness of life. But woven into the fabric of their being, woven into the fabric of the first church's existence was this deep-rooted desire to connect with one another at the deepest level. Whereas, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think we tend to think it's normal just to pop into church once in a week and maybe make it to a small group if we remember to sign up at the beginning of term And all the time we're reluctant to let other people see what's really going on behind the mask. But that would have been completely and utterly unrecognizable in the first church. They shared their lives together. You know, I think we desperately need to clear away some of the obstacles to making this possible. For starters, I want to appeal to you to look out for the interests of others over your own. Instead of waiting for other people to include you or invite you or reach out to you, why don't you take the initiative in including, inviting, reaching out to others? And whatever you do, please let the barriers down. Drop the mask. Take some risks. Be vulnerable with others. Invite people to get closer to you even if there's nothing in it for you. That's the third thing. Here's the fourth one. I said we'd do it quickly. Here's the fourth one. The first church was a practice-driven church. Just to be clear, I absolutely love the Holy Spirit. I love the power of the Spirit. I crave more of the presence of the Spirit. I, I, I so appreciate the gifts of the Spirit and God's design for the church, for each part of the body to have a crucial part to play. All different gifts, all needing one another. I love extended times of worship. But the first church on encountering the power of the Spirit so dramatically at Pentecost... They channeled that into sustainable, transformative practices. They took the glory that was poured out and tried to weave it into the fabric of their life in relationship and friendship and community with others. And it was full of wonder. It was full of awe. It was full of power. It was glorious. But they practiced teaching, fellowship, breaking bread, prayer, having everything in common, selling their property, meeting together, and praising God. These are disciplines that formed and shaped the people of God over the long haul. You know, the typical person today, it's really hard, isn't it, to go straight to conversation about Jesus with them. And so I think we have to live the kind of lives that provoke people outside the church through our alternative way of living, our alternative practices, our alternative disciplines, provoke them to ask us what on earth makes our lives so attractive in comparison to theirs. In the words of a guy called Leslie Newbegin, we must live in the kingdom of God 
in such a way that it provokes questions for which the gospel is the answer. Our lives have to be the provoking, instigating, inciting event that make people say, tell me about the story that lies behind all of this. That's certainly how it was for the first church. I mean, just have a look at some of these practices, some of these disciplines. They devoted themselves to being taught. The bottom line was they wanted to learn from the Scriptures. They wanted to grow in understanding. They grappled with what their faith meant in day-to-day life. They were also added to the church, not just floating in and out when they felt like it. They were an integral part of it, added into it. They were plugged into community, sharing their lives at the deepest of levels with one another. And they were financially committed too. They gave of their resources generously. If you were to read the New Testament, you'd see that two of the chief distinctives of the first church were sexual purity and financial generosity. I tell you, you've got to be deeply persuaded of the reality of eternal life if you're going to give up sex outside of marriage and give up your hard-earned money. But they were convinced at the deepest level that this life wasn't all there is. They knew that Jesus had been raised from the dead. They'd seen it with their own eyes. They were convinced they were going to be with him, reign with him in the new heaven and the new earth for all eternity. And so what did they do? They committed themselves to getting ready. They developed these intentional practices to grow in godliness. And then fifthly and finally, God blessed them with power. It says in verse 43, a deep sense of awe came over them all. And the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And each day, the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. In essence, they were living the kind of lives that God could bless. So there you have it. Priorities, permanence, proximity, practice, power. Took me hours to work that out. I just wanted to make sure you appreciated the effort that had gone into it. And so my question is simply this. My question is simply this. What would the church look like in our city, in our community? Instead of making everything about the individual and the church being entertaining, what would this church look like if we all intentionally applied this message in the power of the Spirit, in the same place for the long haul together? Jesus said, didn't he, that our love for one another would prove to the world that we're his disciples. We're called to model something completely countercultural. What could that look like in our generation? Now look, I don't want any of this to load you down with condemnation or with guilt. That's not my aim. Quite the opposite. I want you to see the culture we live in 
for what it is. I want you to open your eyes and see reality. And I desperately, more than anything else, want you to receive hope and faith today and a bit of motivation to give yourself from this point on to something so much better. So much better. I said at the beginning, I simply want to sow some seeds in your heart that if in the grace of God the Spirit would water them, they begin to take root and grow, they could change the rest of not only your life, but our life together. Have a listen to this. Wouldn't it be terrible if this could be said of our lives? In contrast to Acts 2, that people came and left our city every couple of years with only a personal desire to advance their careers. And because they were only going to be there for a while, they never committed to a church or gave themselves to the community and its mission. They jumped from church to church, looking for the latest teacher or worship that would meet their personal preferences. They were worried about surviving, and so they were never financially generous. They never let themselves be known And so as they wrestled with the temptations of the city, they allowed them to define their experience. And when it became too hard, they left without letting any of the people in the churches they'd been attending know, and they resumed living this way somewhere else. I hear that and I'm thinking, isn't there something more than that? I don't want that to be the story of my life. There's got to be something better than that. But how about this? All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all. And the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshipped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. We've got the book of Acts to do many things. But one of the main things I think is to inspire us. To inspire us not to end up where so many people all around us in this city, in our culture, are stuck. Now, at the end of the day, regardless of your background, your stage of life, your personality, how you start is pretty much identical for all of us. For example, it's time for life group sign-up. What do you do? You sign up for a life group. There's a lunch after the site meeting. What do you do? You get there. There's a prayer meeting or one of our river events. What do you do? You prioritise it. There's a church weekend away coming up. Ha-ha, what do you do? It's a no-brainer. 
I'm there. Absolutely, I'm there. It starts the same for everyone. You, you simply need to grab hold of the opportunities that we're trying to kind of throw out there for you to connect in community with others. Take those opportunities. But the attitude you enter with is completely different. You come with a larger vision of what could happen. You, you don't come primarily to get your needs met, but to encourage and bless others You don't give up and throw in the towel the moment it's costly or people hurt you or let you down. No, you forgive. You refuse to hold grudges. You insist on believing the best. You begin with the end in mind that God could really do this. That maybe God could do something that in a hundred years' time, say, people are looking back and saying, you know what? Those people at Church Central, particularly those people at the West Side, I mean, they were insane. I mean, it's amazing what they managed to do from such humble beginnings. That the fruit of their presence and community together absolutely changed their city. But I think how it ends for us will be determined by our motives and the attitude of our heart. And so my simple prayer is that God would take some of these seeds and that they would find good soil in your heart and that you'd be able to look back on your life in years to come and see how you played your part in community with God's people to see God's kingdom come in our time and our place.